From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia, and as usual, I'm joined by Patrick Malloy, and we'll be calling in with Chris Jackson in just a few seconds. How are we doing, Patrick? Pretty good, Andrew. How are you? Chris Jackson? Speaking. How are you, Mr. Leadham? Uh, doing well. How are you? All well here, sir. All well. So, Chris, uh, we don't have that much time before we call Amanda, but uh, do you want to give us a little bit of background about Ulimco, what they do very quickly? Right. So a little bit of background. Um, So Amanda is the CEO and co-founder of a UK-based company called Ulemco. Um, She's also the chair of the UK's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. She's been really active in promoting these technologies and helping to explain to investors and the public what hydrogen and fuel cells can potentially do. Um, Her company, Ulemco, is really interesting because it actually focuses on how uh, hydrogen can be used for commercial vehicles um, that exist today by actually making retrofits to them so that instead of having to build something brand new, today you can already see some of the uh, not only efficiency benefits but environmental benefits from combining hydrogen systems with current technologies that you're using. And she'll go into more detail about that during the call, but um, it's just it's an interesting and slightly different take on, uh, I think, what people tend to read a lot about in the press, which is that hydrogen and mobility must always mean fuel cells. Uh, it's just a slightly different take on that and something that I think will be more relevant for this transition period over the next few years where we're still really just beginning to scale up the infrastructure we need for fuel cell vehicles. And so actually the kind of work Ulemco does could be a really attractive proposition for companies that are waiting to see the rest of that infrastructure roll out before making the full leap across from conventional internal combustion engines towards fuel cell vehicles. So I think that's why it's interesting and I'm sure she'll go into more detail on the call today. Hi, Amanda. It's Chris Jackson here. How are you? All right. Thanks, Chris. Amanda, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about why you decided to start Ulemco with your co-founder, Paul, and maybe you could talk a little bit about why you chose to focus on hydrogen applications for commercial vehicles. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris, for inviting me to uh, talk to your listeners about uh, what is increasingly a very important aspect of future decarbonisation. So my background was I, about 15 years ago, met a gentleman who had an innovative idea for a new fuel cell technology. And uh, I helped him found that company and got involved in hydrogen and fuel cells around that time. Uh, I have to say, actually, I had a background uh, years before that in the chemical industry and was involved in the UK's chloralkali business, which, uh, as some of your listeners may know, uh, produces hydrogen as a byproduct. So I've had hydrogen as a feature in my uh, whole career, actually. It's um, followed you wherever uh, you go. <laughs> yes. Yes, very different world now, though, hopefully. Um, <laughs> anyway, so during that time, uh, we were developing a fuel cell technology that I have to say was very inventive, but trying to be the next generation on fuel cells when... There isn't an existing industry for fuel cells really even today. So, um, you know, as an SME and an equity funded business, we raised plenty of money, but we had a lot to do to make that a commercial output. But my last job that I did for them, having founded it, was met a company in Essex that were doing work in hydrogen combustion, hydrogen dual fuel technology. Uh, and we actually uh, started a project based around the Honda manufacturing plant where there was a hydrogen station 
uh, to put vehicles on the road to use the hydrogen from that station in around 2012, I guess it would have been, something like that. Anyway, I persuaded the engineering firm to spin out that hydrogen combustion dual fuel technology, which obviously I can explain a bit more about at that time, and that's how we set up Ulemco. From my perspective, generally I'm a commercial person, and the thing that I found very exciting and I still find exciting about the hydrogen dual fuel technology is we can have it on the road now, and the requirements for change for commercial vehicle operators is uh, much smaller than it would be to go to electric or fuel cell technology, and therefore we can really make some inroads into getting hydrogen used in transport applications today, uh, where longer term there may be other future and better solutions available. So yeah, that was that was sort of really for me personally, it was a real here and now way of actually uh, making the hydrogen in transport application real. Um, I think the other part of your question was also sort of, you know, why commercial vehicles, really? Um, yeah. It's pretty evident to me, um, and certainly increasingly, that, you know, trying to do decarbonisation for heavier duty transport is just not going to happen with electric alone, if at all. And, and therefore, you know, we don't have a solution, an immediate here and now solution for heavier duty application and hydrogen into commercial vehicles seems to be, to me and others, a more obvious route to try and to, to reduce carbon emissions. And therefore, it makes a better commercial opportunity for our company, <laughs> frankly. And Amanda, how do you and Alimco see uh, the future of hydrogen developing in the mobility sector? Are you is it fuel cells or hydrogen combustion or both? I'll kick to the chase on the question, hey. Um, the, uh, I mean, I think I fundamentally believe in horses for courses, okay? So... We will have electric cars doing good city, urban, probably a large proportion of everybody's driving habits. I have an electric car myself. The truth is I have two cars in our family because I need uh, something to go further on many occasions. Uh, I also tow a horse box. So, you know, what are you going to do with those kind of applications? And in those scenarios, I firmly believe that electric is not going to be the right solution whether that's from a consumer practicality point of view or a cost point of view, or for that matter, an environmental, long-term environmental requirement. And that's where hydrogen would kick in. I see in passenger cars and, you know, smaller vehicles that the need to get to real efficiency and the absolute best efficiency, whether that uh, because we need the space on board a vehicle to ensure that we can fit as much energy on board as possible, or for that matter, using it efficiently in a ubiquitous, lots of people doing lots of miles and range, then I'm sure the efficiency that you gain from the combination of an electric and fuel cell vehicle is entirely the right answer for us to have. As you move further along that, uh, you then become having a trade-off between the cost of that efficiency, uh, whether you need payload and weight requirements, or in truth, the overall cost as well of the vehicle as you push further on versus range and practicality and all the other stuff that we're used to. And that's where I think there's a transition between where uh, maybe hydrogen combustion, which is obviously our main focus, uh, although we do do fuel cell integration, for our view, sort of let the customer decide really, because in the end, if we can 
do 100% hydrogen uh, combustion at zero emission and it's cheaper and it doesn't require as much payload reduction, then the customers will choose that. And equally, as you push further into shipping, it might be that we end up needing a version of hydrogen because we need more energy density because carrying hydrogen in a gaseous form uh, is going to be challenging. So that might be liquefied or it might even be in ammonia or other formats of hydrogen that are more similar to the way we use effectively hydrogen in energy today coupled with carbon we need to find a way of doing it coupled with something else when you start to look at in heat and other applications well you know it just will prove cheaper and more effective to burn the hydrogen in that kind of system so i don't think it's an either or in any way ultimately we it, the, the many 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 benefits that we will get in decarbonizing a system using hydrogen rather than try not to have hydrogen in the system um, and ultimately the application and the consumer will decide. We were very fortunate on the podcast to have uh, at the beginning of uh, our series an interview with Ballard talking a little bit about how fuel cells work. Um, but just for our listeners, um, if you could maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by hydrogen combustion in a sort of uh, mobility space, I guess, uh, to people maybe who've not heard of the concept before, it probably sounds a little bit uh, maybe strange or somewhat uh, maybe even counterintuitive, the idea of mixing hydrogen into something that then is flammable. Um, so maybe you could just talk a little bit about how that kind of plays out. And and you also talked about how you are largely adapting existing vehicles. So again, sort of what the advantages a little bit of doing that are. Well, actually, you know, hydrogen combustion is not new. In fact, when we invented combustion engines, we we did work in hydrogen combustion and ultimately we, um, you know, fixed on liquid fuels because of the energy density that you can get when you're moving a liquid fuel around in a vehicle. But, you know, the important thing to remember in most of these things is the actual energy that you get from burning a fuel comes from the hydrogen itself, not the carbon parts that are with it. So ultimately, by burning hydrogen directly rather than the combination with carbon is the most sort of logical step that you, you could progress to or, or do. The, the opportunity with fuel cell technology is that you actually can combine, you, you have an electrochemical reaction rather than a combustion reaction. And in principle, that in itself is more efficient if you can, if you can create the electricity in this catalytic reaction with the fuel cell technology. You, in theory, you, you remove losses of efficiency that you get with mechanical systems that you would normally get from an engine and burning. Uh, the reality is that, you know, when you actually put that into a system, then you, you, the electricity needs to be coupled with other electrical components and balance of plant in order for you to be doing that. And so when you actually look at the overall use of hydrogen, how many miles do you get out of the, you know, the kilogram of hydrogen or how many terms or kilowatts or whatever do you get out from, from doing that? Um, then that you have to compare it at a system level. A fuel cell, the Ballard guys and the team are correct. A fuel cell vehicle is actually an electric vehicle um, with the hydrogen providing energy energy from outside of the vehicle uh, as opposed to a battery vehicle that has it all and needs to be moving a heavy battery around everywhere you're going. Um, so that, you know, hydrogen combustion is not new. Um, it's used in um, industrial applications all the time. 
The challenge of doing hydrogen combustion historically has been that you would tend to see an engine being less efficient in in transport applications. It was is normally done in a spark ignition engine, and by inherently spark ignition engines are not as efficient as diesel compression engines. Um, then you would also uh, run into a challenge of in certain conditions, as you burn hydrogen, uh, you will generate increased NOx. You automatically don't have particulates in the engine. So if you consider the air quality challenge that we're also trying to do at the same time as decarbonisation, um, you you have no particulates. So that problem is taken away because the carb- the particulates come from the carbon in in the liquid fuels. But you do need to look at other other byproducts of the combustion process, and particularly with hydrogen, it's not. The work that we've done in research in hydrogen combustion shows that that NOx occurs at particular uh, air fuel ratios. So if you can get enough air in to burn with the hydrogen, then actually you you generate no NOx at all. Um, and what we what we've been able to do with that knowledge is show that if we take an ordinary diesel engine and we mix hydrogen in certain proportions through the uh, engine cycle at low speed and low torque, where hydrogen will have the right conditions to not produce NOx, we can put lots of hydrogen in and reduce the NOx emissions from the diesel vehicle. As we push further up the uh, torque or, or curve, um, we reduce the amount of hydrogen we put in uh, uh, so that we can make sure it still performs the way the driver wants the vehicle to perform and we keep within the air quality parameters of the modern engine requirements. So our company actually has immediately a way of providing hydrogen to displace diesel in the vehicle. The carbon emission reduction is directly attributable to the amount of diesel we can displace with hydrogen. And we're doing that in a manner that ensures that actually uh, it's no worse than the base vehicle, which in most cases these days in Europe is a Euro 6 and a very low emission vehicle anyway. Uh, In many cases, in real-world duty cycle is actually improving on that Euro 6 air quality performance. And the early stage point is that although it's not a radical redesign of the vehicle, uh, we can use scaled vehicle systems. So an engine that is already very cheap, a vehicle that is produced in mass production, and we're adding hydrogen technology on. So at the moment, the hydrogen side is fairly expensive because you know, we have limited suppliers and we're only doing it at small scale. But as we go forward, there's not a reason why that will be um, uh, stay at a high price and with scale it will drop. And effectively, the additional cost onto the vehicle is adding hydrogen storage. And Amanda, can you talk a bit about the commercial benefits that your customers see from adding uh, hydrogen into their engines? Well, the driver, to be honest, has to be we want to reduce carbon emissions. We wouldn't do it. Nobody would do any of this if they don't want to improve uh, their sustainability of the vehicles that they're operating. And that's true for any electric electric vehicle that anybody would deploy uh, as as much as it is for for a hydrogen technology. 
So the commercial opportunity is to improve the sustainability of your business by accessing hydrogen, which will decarbonize. And certainly in, in many companies, you know, they have a priority that, that uh, means that they need to act now and deliver uh, climate benefit. Amanda, just just a bit of a, a segue. As the chair of the, the UK's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association and, and indeed the founder of your own hydrogen kind of company, why is the UK market now starting to see more interest in, in hydrogen technologies? What, what And what, I suppose, has changed from previous waves of interest? So, well, you ha- go back to what I just said about climate. And the reality is the world has signed up to a process that says we will decarbonize by 2050. And as you know, recently, the, the UK's even gone a step further and said it will be net zero rather than an 80% reduction. Once you start down that road and you start looking at the implications of renewable energy into the system or looking at the costs of, of trying to make everything electric and moving away from gas and you understand you've already got existing assets in the ground, um, the awareness of the role that hydrogen can play in that story becomes increasingly obvious, frankly. So on the one hand, it's driven by everyone's awareness of, you know, this is a serious problem and that we are legally all obliged to do something about it. I think the other piece that does hit home and is more aware is, if you're really honest, one of the barriers to climate change is the need to make consumers change behaviour. If you look at my own, even in my own case, you know, putting insulation into my home. In truth, I haven't got my house fully insulated because it's inconvenient for me to find a contractor, do it, and the energy saving I'm going to make is not really enough to you know, put up for the money and the effort that I have to do to change my behaviour. Equally, if you start to look in electric vehicles, as I've explained before, I have an electric car, but you know, normal on-the-road driving behaviours can require and do require people to think mildly differently about how they're going to do that as a consumer, whether that's charging a car or, you know, using a different dealership for, for buying your car, et cetera, et cetera. You can't use the local garage at the moment, for instance, requires me to change my behavior. And ultimately, most people immediately can't do that. Whereas hydrogen provides an opportunity that, you know, people won't need to change their behavior. They can still have one car that does both of all the journeys that they want to do. And I feel like uh, the, the awareness of an industry you know, using hydrogen uh, to displace what they currently do is a lot easier to do that with hydrogen than it is to transfer everything to electricity. And actually, in some cases, it would just not be possible to do it with electricity. So I think the, the reason why the UK is getting it is we, you know, it's not just the UK, I think, around the globe. People are seeing that in this, you know, if we're going to decarbonize in the timescales that we need to, we have no choice. We have to do things differently. And actually putting hydrogen into the system allows us to do a lot more similar than we've we've been used to. Yeah, absolutely, Amanda. I I think just as a a little bit of a follow on around the sector, you know, like I suppose from an investment perspective, what are kind of the, the big challenges that, that UK companies have tried and are trying to overcome in, in terms of getting to scale? And, and how does that uh, kind of UK environment either uh, helping or hindering that? Well, <laughs> you know, how, how, how long have we got? You know, <laughs> um, 
So, um, and it, and I actually say it's not just the UK; it's everywhere. But on transport, just at transport, we currently have a way that we can recharge an electric vehicle, and all electric vehicle sales can be charged at home because actually we're tapping into a public paid for infrastructure. It happens to be paid for everybody in their electricity bills and that we have wires that can come to our houses. In hydrogen, there is none of that. You know, not only can we not generate the hydrogen at scale for this application because it's all brand new, really, even though we know we could do it in industry, um, but for transport applications, it's not the right hydrogen, it's not in the right places, it's not generated in the right way. Um, we don't have any wires or pipes or anything that can move it around. Um, so for transport, the fact is, currently, there is no infrastructure at all. So you might hear electric people complaining that there's not enough charging infrastructure. Well, that's the bit that the consumer sees. All the rest is still there. So in hydrogen to transport, all of that needs to be built to enable it to happen in one way or another. Um, I'd say uh, from an investment perspective, there is also the reality. Today, we sit, uh, again, if I bring it back into our real examples, um, there's a lot of work going on in the UK on the back of meeting European air quality emission standards that have set ultra-low emission zones or starting to set them up. The reality is any operator that uh, wants to conform and not pay the extra fee to go into London, they can always go in with a non-compliant vehicle, but if they don't want to pay the fee to go in, then they need to buy a Euro 6 diesel vehicle. There is no incentive for them to go any further than a Euro 6 diesel vehicle. So there's no commercial incentive unless he can see a competitive advantage to being sustainable. And that might be that they supply the public sector and the public sector are asking for lower carbon options. There is no commercial incentive to go further than Euro 6 diesel at the moment in the UK. And that's probably true everywhere. Um, and that's only one example. So carbon isn't valued. There's no carbon price. And actually, why would anybody commercially do more than you need to do to stay with your competition? So just as a, a, a kind of quick follow on to that, I think in the US, uh, Nikola, uh, the, the uh, fuel cell electric uh, vehicle uh, truck company, have generated an awful yeah. lot of headlines, a lot of uh, kind of interest and momentum, and uh, as of a little little while ago, quite a lot of money. I'm just wondering, when we talk about the infrastructure around supplying mobility, how do you think the, the kind of distributed model that they have, where you know they have 700 notional fueling stations dotted around the country, stacks up versus that kind of mass build-out, uh, single supply kind of source infrastructure? How do you how do you think that kind of fits into the the general hydrogen picture? So um, I'm not being rude about Nicola, but they have a plan that will build some infrastructure, mm. and they have done a fabulous job and raised money to help them get to a development curve, but they don't actually have have any or many vehicles on the road with customers really at the moment and they have a great ambition right that we all support because it's fantastic what they're doing and um, to have sort of supply infrastructure on routes that would make sense um, but that's going to happen in the future sometime it's not here and now um, if you look at what we're doing 
Um, we can see a model for urban-based vehicles, and actually it's similar to a bus, the bus principles that are working in the UK for fuel cell buses, where based around depot movements, urban movements, you can get to a level of scale. And the Ballard guy on your podcast explained the sort of volume numbers of vehicles that they need for fuel cells to make that make sense, where if you get enough around a hub and a base, refueling and therefore doing that you can get to a hydrogen scale that makes it competitive and our vehicles actually mean that although we're not you know 100% hydrogen it's a significant percentage of hydrogen that could decarbonize and do fleet-wide decarbonization around a hub and that's the model that I think uh, we're what well, certainly we're focused on on working with, and is actually what's happening in places like Aberdeen, uh, Liverpool City Region. Uh, the Ballard guys mentioned London buses. I think the French have been working on sort of hub-based around around infrastructure and get as many vehicles operating on hydrogen in an area that would make the hydrogen production at scale. And I think we um, can all do that now. I don't think if we could get investors understanding and and customer demand comfortable then that's doable now and the project we recently finished with uh, which was supported by the office for low emission vehicles we worked with people like the london fire brigade who recognized they could convert ones and twos to electric of their vehicles but they have a whole fleet and they can achieve a significant percentage reduction across the fleet that is equivalent or more than the few vehicles that they could deploy with other technologies. And that's the opportunity. So, Amanda, I think that's a really interesting uh, sort of point. I just want to follow up on that a little bit. I mean, um, explaining these technologies, I think, sometimes can seem a little bit uh, abstract for people who don't really understand uh, or haven't had the chance to see these units in action because it's still an emerging space. Maybe if you just very quickly tell our listeners uh, some of the types of vehicles that you've actually worked with. I, I think you've mentioned before, uh, you've just talked about the fire department there, but I, I believe that also there are a number of other customers, not just public sector, but private sector that you've worked with. So if you could maybe just give a few examples. Yeah, so waste and refuse collection. So if you think about trucks that operate in an urban environment, and I'm I'm targeting urban because that is the combination of we want better air quality in a uh urban environments but also a movement that can work around a hub then uh, if you took something like uh, we have a project or have just finished a project with Westminster City Council they have something like 80 refuse trucks operating on their contract to collect waste within the Westminster area there are a few of the vehicles that could be electric but the rest of the vehicles if we gave them a percentage hydrogen uh, reduction using the hydrogen dual fuel technology they could do that across their fleet in order to do that that means that involves us putting hydrogen cylinders on the refuse truck but otherwise the vehicle is a diesel a diesel vehicle for the driver it's the same as what they used to uh, they can fill up with hydrogen in the speed that they used to fill in up roughly the same speed as the diesel fill up and the and for their purposes there's nothing different about the vehicle 
Um, so that's one example. Um, another one that's worked really, really well is is road sweepers for Aberdeen City Council. So lots of people that do know a little bit about what's been going on in the UK and Europe know that Aberdeen have had hydrogen fuel cell buses, quite a high profile project. Um, they now have um, two dual fuel hydrogen refuse trucks. They've actually had dual fuel transit vans from us for as long as they've had the buses in Aberdeen. Um, but we've recently uh, just delivered the second road sweeper that's also converted to hydrogen dual fuel, and we hope that they'll do more of them. In this case, we're talking about HGV road sweepers. It suits the hydrogen dual fuel technology really well because they're running at slow speed around the streets on a regular route, passing the hydrogen station. The driver can fill up with the hydrogen he has diesel as well. Uh, the next, the day after next, he goes past it again. He can fill up again. Um, if, if for some reason uh, he can't fill up with the hydrogen, um, he has the diesel vehicle anyway, so he can still finish the job. Uh, and those are a couple of examples of the type of vehicle. In the freight trial project, we also did a refrigerated van for Ocado, uh, where you can imagine in their case, you're using more energy because you've got to keep the vehicle chilled and when you start to look at what could you do with electric in that scenario you can do some routes but you know it becomes limited across the fleet. So look Amanda I just wanted to ask as we're wrapping up a little bit wanted to just see if there was uh, anything else that you wanted to sort of share with our listeners or if you there was anything you felt that we'd not covered in the interview that you would like to just touch on in the last couple of minutes. Um, I guess it really boils down to uh, recognising that we need to not be the slave for the very best today, but we should be getting on with what we can do in the here and now. And, you know, caution to be in the slaves. There's no doubt that a beautiful, very, very efficient electric, well, for that matter, an electric vehicle that's really, really efficient, but actually consumers don't want to buy it because... They can't. They either can't afford it, or, or uh, more importantly, they can't see how they could use it. If we slavishly stick with that scenario, we can't make the change. So I, I think that's one very important part, which I know I mentioned at the beginning. But so in our case, in the hydrogen dual fuel technology, it isn't zero emission. There is still diesel included in it, but it's a stepping stone at worst, and at best, it's a way of us delivering change now that we. We, we can't wait for some of these vehicles the hgvs will be on the road for 10 or 15 years certainly historically that's what people do that says we're now in 2020 effectively in 15 years time there are still going to be diesel vehicles on the road unless we try and make that change now our technology could either help to make sure that those diesel vehicles are uh, have some level of carbon saving in it um but actually you know we're talking about every single vehicle on the road needs to be decarbonized and that also includes you know cement mixers um it includes off-road tractors and vehicles off the road all of these are assets that we need to work at how we solve now and in many cases if we if we slavishly stick to the fact that those are only going to be electric well people won't make that change but we need to actually work together to get the hydrogen infrastructure off the ground and it shouldn't be done at the expense of well ultimately that particular thing isn't the most efficient thing that you could do 
do. No, it's part of the solution. Net Zero has helped us recognize that hydrogen will be there and we need to get on with it, really. Excellent. Thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate you uh, joining us this morning. It's very kind of you and uh, hopefully you can come back and join us again soon. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I, I love it. And I, I've listened to your other podcasts and I'm sure you'll come up with some interesting things to follow up on. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time. All right, Andrew. So uh, you are our resident battery electric vehicle expert, electric mobility, which is obviously an area that you've done a lot of work on and that Inspiration are hosting an event on EVS Whistler in November, you know, giving us that sort of perspective on this. I mean, obviously, Amanda spoke quite a bit about electric vehicles. I just wanted to see what your initial thoughts were. Yeah, I, I thought her view was. Let's just put it this way. I have a different view from her, from how she characterized uh, the state of battery electric vehicles even to some degree how she characterized the current state of uh, fuel cell electric vehicle technology. She indicated, or at least I understood her to indicate, that BEVs today cannot and do not function at the level or the practical usage rates that modern consumers, modern car owners use their internal combustion engine vehicles. Fundamentally, I don't know that that's correct. Now, they are more expensive, right? And they're certainly the lower, the more affordable priced models. They do have shorter battery lives. They're better suited to urban mobility. But there are cars out there that are coming online in the next year. Rivian R1S, R1T. Both of those cars are claiming to have 400-mile full charge ranges. I mean, they are a little bit more expensive, but that price point is coming down. I also saw that Fisker, uh, you know, Fisker Inc. is coming out with a an SUV that's solidly in the forty thousand uh, dollar per vehicle range, and you know these are these are the types of cars that the modern car owner, the modern family, can use on a day to day basis as well as for longer trips. Now, to her point about charging infrastructure, I mean, I think that's absolutely on target, but uh, from the standpoint of BEVs and charging infrastructure versus accessibility of hydrogen refueling stations as a comparison point. Uh, I don't think there is one really there. It's unfair to say that uh, BEVs are at the same level of development or charging infrastructure is at the same level of development as hydrogen refueling infrastructure. I mean, I just don't think that's true. I think charging infrastructure is much further along in that sense. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? No, I think it's. I mean, I think there's a fair set of comments. I mean, the, the discussion around hydrogen mobility often um, sometimes gets focused on the light duty side, and I tend to share your view. And I think Amanda, you know, also was sort of speaking to this at, at the beginning by saying, you know, that actually for running around in urban areas, it does make sense for short distance trips. She was saying she uses one herself. I think it's in that sort of longer distances where maybe it gets a little bit more complicated and certainly Mercedes have tried to square this with their uh, F-cell model that is a hybrid battery and fuel cell system. So you can do the run around on the battery and if you do want to avoid some of that range anxiety for longer duration, you can switch over to the fuel cell side. But I mean, I think what was for me perhaps more interesting was the fact that it's something that, you know, as Mando was describing, hydrogen combustion technology is a plug in and play for commercial vehicles today that are looking at how do we decarbonize when 
there isn't necessarily the same variety of options in the battery or in the fuel cell market as there are in the conventional internal combustion engine market. And so what can people do in the interim to help reduce emissions? And I think that was kind of where uh, I thought it was interesting to get her perspective and interesting to hear some examples. I mean, Patrick, you work in this area a lot. What was your kind of view? I think it's worth noting a little bit of the how big this challenge is, right? So a, a Class A truck today gets about 6.4 miles per gallon uh, using diesel. The North American Council for Freight Efficiency, NACFI, who or uh, my partners with, runs a program called Run on Less. And that has seen efficiency gains up to kind of uh, 10.1 miles per gallon. The Nikola One, I believe pitches the potential of a 12 to 15 miles per gallon equivalent, right? So this is the the max scale, right? What that doesn't necessarily speak to is the transition challenge, right? And this is where this this kind of technology, There, I think there are some other companies, I think um, one that springs to mind around mining is called Dynasert. These hydrogen injection kind of efforts or combination efforts uh, look to improve the efficiency typically of pre-existing fleets, right? So you're not talking about total fleet conversion, you're talking about transitional aspects. So the size of the prize here is is pretty pretty substantial. And and I think it's very interesting to hear the dynamic kind of applications that you can you can I, I think uh, Amanda spoke to a, a few different types of commercial vehicles and applications. Some of those I'm not overly familiar with, but this is a an interesting and valuable approach towards that that transition jump step where we have large numbers of vehicles that have good life left on the on the roads and how we can massively potentially reduce the the carbon content of it. Sorry to jump in Patrick but uh to Amanda's point right I mean I think she she said this well or I think she pointed to it at least how many uh how many Nikola trucks have been delivered yet so far? Right. But zero, that's, zero, but, right? But, but that's Fourteen, the, 14,000 that's, orders and a $3 billion valuation. Right, right, Andrew. And that's precisely why I spoke about transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I'm agreeing, I'm agreeing with you. And that is the point, right? right. Like Because we have a notional number of, of efficiencies, which is basically double what today's uh, typical trucks get to. And the bridge is the challenge, right? And that's it's not so much that I, I'm ignoring Amanda's point, so much as that's the value of Amanda's point. Yeah, no, I think I think to that end, in, in that sense, I thought she was she was right on target, and I would agree with your characterization as well. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, Andrew, I mean, you know, obviously the key question I have is, uh, will the new Rivian battery electric vehicle uh, be suitable for a box cart? <laughs> a horse box? Yeah, horse box. Sorry, horse box. Yeah, uh, you know, as far as I recall, uh, I haven't looked at the at the spec sheet recently, but I think they have something like a ten thousand pound towing capacity. So theoretically, it sh- I don't know how much does a horse box weigh, Depends with on or without the horse. the horse, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ballpark it. Horse bar horse box, fully loaded, two horses. A Rivian can probably pull it. Should we take a bet on this? Yeah, well, maybe you can uh, you can ask one of them and uh, give us give us a, a perspective. But uh, yeah, I'd be probably a horse to or a Rivian. <laughs> I was thinking Rivian. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, probably but, get a, you know. probably get a more substantive answer out of them. Maybe probably. 
maybe but look i think what's also interesting and you know i, I know we're uh, we're running towards the end of the time as uh, as always the case with us but um you know i think you guys were both talking about actual units deployed what's important is that there are dual fuel hydrogen systems that are operating in the uk today in, in a market where there is really still very few fuel cell electric vehicles uh, and really a sm- relatively small number of fuel cell buses um, you know, it's great to see companies like Nikola uh, out there with really exciting visions. And, you know, Amanda spoke to the fact that everyone is really hoping within the industry that these guys will pull it off because it will certainly transform perceptions. Um, but there are other startups like HV Systems, which is also a Scottish based um, fuel cell truck company that are also starting out with really exciting ideas. But the reality is uh, they don't have units that are deployed. You can't necessarily go and buy a whole ton of them and roll them out yet. So, you know, I think what companies like Ulemco do and what a lot of their technologies can do is actually help to build out some of that hydrogen refueling infrastructure, um, which I think is really important and providing a really easy way to do that um, so that you don't have to go completely full fuel cell. You can, as she mentioned, rely on your diesel for a while, but still reduce your emission profile. But, you know, as Patrick also talked to provide a little bit of a pathway towards that transition. So I think, I think that's quite an important and positive message. Well said. Well said. All right, guys. I think that's going to wrap up today's episode. Well, thank you guys for joining me. And uh, thanks to Amanda Line, Managing Director at Ulemco in the UK. It's a pleasure speaking with her today. And if you guys have any questions for us on the podcast, please do reach out at podcasts at inspiration.com. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating and review us on iTunes, Spotify, whichever platform you prefer. It does help us reach a larger audience and promote the show. And as usual, if you don't like the show, don't do anything at all. (laughs) Does that sound about right, guys? Do you guys have anything to add to that? (laughs) No, I think you're good. We're going to leave that one with you, Andrew. All right. All right, guys. 